Welcome to Volume 9 of P.G. Wodehouse's How Right You Are, Jeeves. Chapter 17 Her words gave me quite a wallop. I didn't say I reeled, and everything didn't actually go black, but I was shaken, as what nephew would not have been, when a loved aunt had sweated herself to the bone trying to save her godchild from the clutches of a New York playboy, and learns that all her well-meant efforts have gone blue on her. It's only natural for her late brother's son to shudder in sympathy. You don't mean that, I said. Who told you? She did. In person. In the flesh. She came skipping to me just now, clapping her little hands, and bleating about how very, very happy she was, dear Mrs. Travers. The silly young geezer. I nearly conked her one with my trowel. I'd always thought her half-baked, but now I think they didn't even put her in the oven. How did it happen? Apparently that dog of hers joined you in the water. Yes, that's right. He took his dip with the rest of us. But what's that got to do with anything? Wilbert Cream dived in and saved him. He could have gotten ashore perfectly well under his own power. In fact, he was already on his way out, doing what it looked like the Australian crawl. That wouldn't occur to a pinhead like Phyllis. To her, Wilbert Cream is the man who rescued her dachshund from a watery grave. So now she's going to marry him. But you don't marry fellows because they rescue dachshunds. You do if you have a mentality like hers. It just seems odd. And it is. But that's how it goes. Girls like Phyllis Mills are an open book to me. For years, I was, if you remember, the proprietor and editress of a weekly paper for women. She was alluding to the periodical entitled Milady's Boudoir, to the Husbands and Brothers page, of which I once contributed an article or piece on what the well-dressed man is wearing. It had recently been sold to a mug up Liverpool Way, and I've never seen Uncle Tom look chirpier than when the deal went through, he for those four years having had to foot the bills. I don't suppose, she continued, that you were a regular reader, so for your information there appeared in each issue a short story, and in seventy percent of those short stories the hero won the heroine's heart by saving her dog or her cat or her canary or whatever foul animal or bird she happened to possess. Well, Phyllis didn't write all those stories, but she might easily have done so. For that's the way her mind works. And when I say mind, said my blood relation, I refer to the quarter teaspoon of brains which you might possibly find in her head if you sank an artesian well. Poor Jane. Poor who? Her mother, Jane Mills. Oh yes, that pal of yours, you told me. The best I ever had, and she was always saying to me, Dahlia, old girl, if I pop off before you, for heaven's sake, look after Phyllis and see that she doesn't marry some ghastly outsider. She's sure to want to. Girls always do, goodness knows why, she said. And I knew she was thinking of her first husband, who was a heel to end all heels and a constant pain in the neck to her till one night he most fortunately walked into the River Thames while under the influence of the sauce, and didn't come up for days. Do stop her, she said, and I said, Jane, you can rely on me. And now this happens. I endeavour to soothe. You can't blame yourself. Yes, I can. It's not your fault. 
I invited Wilbur Cream here. Merely from a wifely desire to do Uncle Tom a bit of good. And I let Upjohn stick around, always at her elbow, egging her on. Yes, Upjohn's the bird I blame. Me too. But for his undue influence, they call it, Phyllis would have remained a bachelor, a spinster, or whatever it is. Thou art the man, Upjohn, seems to me to be the way to sum it up. He ought to be ashamed of himself. And I'm going to tell him so. I'd give a terror to have Aubrey Upjohn here at this moment. You can get him for nothing. He's in Uncle Tom's study. Her face lit up. He is... She threw back her head and inflated the lungs. Upjohn! She boomed, rather like someone calling the cattle home across the sands of Dee when I issued a kindly word of warning. Watch that blood pressure, old ancestor. Never mind my blood pressure! You let it alone, and it'll leave me alone. Up, John! He appeared in the French window, looking cold and severe, as I had so often seen him look when hobnobbing with him in his study at Melvin House. Self not there as a willing guest, but because I'd been sent for. Who is making that abominable noise? Oh, it's you, Dahlia. Yes, it's me. You wish to see me? Yes, but not the way you're looking now. I'd have preferred you to have a fractured spine, or at least to have broken a couple of bones and get a touch of leprosy. My dear Dahlia. I'm not your dear Dahlia. I'm a seething volcano. Have you seen Phyllis? She has just left me. Did she tell you? That she's engaged to Wilbur Cream? Certainly. And I suppose you're delighted. Of course I am. Of course you are. I can well imagine it's your dearest wish to see that unfortunate, mutton-headed girl become the wife of a man who lets off stink bombs in nightclubs and pinches the spoons and has three divorces already and who, if the authorities play their cards right, will end up cracking rocks at Sing Sing. That is, unless the loony bin gets its bid in first. Just a Prince Charming, you might say. I don't understand you. Then you're an ass! Well, really? Said Aubrey Upjohn, there was a dangerous note in his voice. I could see the relative's manner, which was not affectionate, and her words, which lacked cordiality, were peeving him. It looked like an odds-on shot that in about another two ticks he would be giving her the collect for the day to read out ten times, or even instructing her to bend over while he fetched his wangy. You can push these preparatory schoolmasters only just so far. A fine way for Jane's daughter to end up. Mrs. Broadway Willie. Broadway Willie? That's what he's called in the circles in which he moves, into which he will now introduce Phyllis. Meet the mall, he'll say, and then he'll teach her in twelve easy lessons how to make stink bombs. And the children, if and when, will be trained to pick people's pockets as they dandle them on their knee. And you'll be responsible, Aubrey Upjohn. I didn't like the way things were trending. Admittedly, the aged relative was putting up a great show, and it was a pleasure to listen to her. But I had seen Upjohn's lip twitch, and that look of smug satisfaction came into his face, which I had so often seen when he had been counsel for the prosecution in some cases in which I was involved, and had spotted a damaging flaw in the testimony. The occasion when I was on trial for having broken the drawing-room window with a cricket ball springs to mind. 
It was plain to an eye as discerning his mind that he was about to put it across the old flesh and blood properly, making her wish she hadn't spoken. I couldn't see how, but the symptoms were all there. And I was right. That twitching lip had not misled me. If I might be allowed to make a remark, my dear Dahlia, I think we are talking at cross-purposes. You appear to be under the impression that Phyllis is marrying Wilbert's younger brother, Wilfred, the notorious playboy whose escapades have caused the family so much distress, and who, as you are correct in saying, is known to his disreputable friends as Broadway Willie. Wilfred, I agree, would make, and on three successive occasions has made, a most undesirable husband. But no one, to my knowledge, has ever spoken a derogatory word of Wilbert. I know few young men who are more generally respected. He is a member of the faculty of one of America's greatest universities, and he's over in this country on his sabbatical. He teaches romance languages. Stop me if I've told you this before. I rather fancy I have, but once, when I was up at Oxford, and chatting on the riverbank with a girl called something that slipped my mind, there was a sound of barking, and a great hefty dog of the Hound of the Baskervilles type came galloping at me, obviously intent on mayhem, its whole aspect that of a dog that has no use for Worcesters. And I was just commending myself to God and thinking that this was where my new flannel trousers got about thirty bobs worth of value bitten out of them, when the girl, waiting till she saw the whites of my eyes, with extraordinary presence of mind, opened a coloured Japanese umbrella in the animal's face. Upon which, with a startled exclamation, it did three back somersaults and retired into private life. The reason I bring this up now is that, barring the somersaults, Aunt Dahlia's reaction to this communique was precisely that of the above hound to the Japanese umbrella. The same visible taken abackness. She has since told me that her emotions were identical with those she had experienced when she was out with a pitchley and riding over a ploughed field in rainy weather, and the horse of a sports lover in front of her suddenly kicked three pounds of wet mud into her face. She gulped, like a bulldog trying to swallow a sirloin steak many sizes too large for its thoracic cavity. You mean there are two of them? Exactly. And Wilbert isn't the one I thought he was? You have grasped the position of affairs to a nicety. You will appreciate now, my dear Dahlia. Set up, John, speaking with the same unction, if that's the word I want, with which he had spoken when unmasking his batteries and presenting unshakable proof that yours was the hand, Worcester, which propelled that cricket ball. That your concern, though doing you the greatest credit, has been needless. I could wish Phyllis no better husband. Wilbert has looks, brains, character, and excellent prospects. He added, rolling the words round his tongue like vintage port. His father, I should imagine, should be worth at least twenty million dollars. And Wilbert is the elder son. Yes, most satisfactory, most. As he spoke, the telephone rang, and with a quick ha, he shot back into the study like a homing rabbit. Chapter 18 For perhaps a quarter of a minute after he had passed from the scene, the aged relative stood struggling for utterance. At the end of that period, she found speech. 
of all the damn silly fat-headed things. She vociferated, if that's the word. With a million ruddy names to choose from, these ruddy creams call one ruddy son Wilbert and the other ruddy son Wilfred. Both these ruddy sons are known as Willie. Just going out of their way to mislead the innocent bystander, you'd think people would have more consideration. Again, I begged her to keep an eye on her blood pressure and not get so worked up, and once more she brushed me off, this time with a curt request that I go and boil my head. You'd be worked up too if you had just been scored off of by Aubrey Upjohn with that loathsome self-satisfied look on his face as if he'd been rebuking a pimply student at his beastly school for shuffling his feet in the church. Ah, oh, that, I said, struck by the coincidence. He once rebuked me for that very reason. And I had pimples. Pompous ass. Shows what a small world it is. What's he doing here anyway? I didn't invite him. Well, bung him out. I took this point up with you before, if you remember. Cast him out into the outer darkness, there to weep and gnash his teeth. I will, if he gives me any more of his lip. I can see you're in a dangerous mood. You bet I'm dangerous. My God, he's with us again. And A. Upjohn was indeed filtering through the French window but he had lost the look of which the ancestor had complained. The one he was wearing now seemed to suggest that since last heard from, something had occurred to wake the fiend that slept in him. Dahlia! He, yes, better make it vociferated once more. I'm pretty sure that's the word I wanted. The fiend that slept in Aunt Dahlia was also up on its toes. She gave him a look which, if directed at an erring member of the personnel of the Corner Pitchley Hound Ensemble, would have had that member sticking his tail between his legs and resolving for the future to lead a better life. Now what? Just as Aunt Dahlia had done, Aubrey Upjohn struggled for utterance. Quite a bit of utterance struggling there had been around these parts this summer afternoon. I have just been speaking with my lawyer on the telephone, he said, getting going after a short stage wait. I asked him to make inquiries and ascertain the name of the author of that libelous attack on me in the columns of the Thursday Review. He did so, and has now informed me it was the work of my former pupil, Reginald Herring. He paused on this point to let us chew it over, and the heart sank, mine I mean. Aunt Dahlia seemed to be carrying on much as usual. She scratched her chin with a trowel and said, Oh, yes! Upjohn blinked, as if he'd been expecting something better than this in the way of sympathy and concern. Is that all you can say? That's the lot. Oh, well, I'm suing the paper for heavy damages. Furthermore, I refuse to remain in the same house as Reginald Herring. Either he goes or I go. There was a sort of silence which I believe cyclones drop into for a second or two before getting down to it and starting to give the populace the works. I could see Aunt Dahlia swelling slowly like a chunk of bubblegum, and a less prudent man than Bertram Worcester would have warned her again about her blood pressure. I beg your pardon, she said. He repeated the key words. Oh, said the relative, and went off with a pop. I could have told Upjohn he was asking for it. Normally as genial a soul as ever broke biscuit, this aunt, when stirred, can become the haughtiest of grand dames, before whose wrath the stoutest quail. And she doesn't like some have to use a lorgnette 
to reduce the citizenry to pulp. She does it with her naked eye. So, you have decided to revise my guest list for me? You have the nerve, the, the... I saw she needed helping out. Audacity, I said, throwing her the line. The audacity to dictate to me who I shall have in my house. It should have been whom, but I let it go. You have the crossed, the immortal rind, she amended. And I had to admit it was stronger. To tell me whom, she got it right that time, I may entertain at Brinkley Court at who, wrong again, I may not. Very well. If you feel unable to breathe the same air as my friends, you must please yourself. I believe the bull and bush in Market Snosbury is quite comfortable. Well spoken of in the automobile guide, I said. I shall go there. I shall go there as soon as my things are packed. Perhaps you'll be good enough to tell your butler to pack them. He strode off, and she went into Uncle Tom's study, me following. She's still snorting. She rang the bell. Jeeves appeared. Jeeves, said the relative, surprised. I was ringing for... It is Sir Roderick's afternoon off, madam. Oh, well, would you mind packing Mr. Upjohn's things, Jeeves? He's leaving us. Very good, madam. And can you drive him to Market Snodsbury, Bertie? Right ho, I said. Not much lacking the assignment, but liking less the idea of endeavouring to thwart this incandescent aunt in her current frame of mind. Safety first is the Worcester slogan. Chapter 19 It isn't much of a run from Brinkley Court to Market Snodsbury, and I deposited up John at the Bull and Bush and started my MPHing homeward in what you might call it thrice. We parted, of course, on rather distant terms, but the great thing when you've got an upjohn on your books is to part and not be fussy about how it's done, and had it not been for all this worry about Kipper, for whom I was now mourning in spirit more than ever, I should have been feeling fine. I could see no happy issue for him from the soup in which he was immersed. No words had been exchanged between upjohn and self on the journey out, but the glimpses I had caught of his face from the corner of the eye told me he was grim and resolute his supply of the milk of human kindness plainly short by several gallons. No hope it seemed to me of turning him from his fell purpose. I garaged the car and went to Aunt Dahlia's sanctum to ascertain whether she'd cooled off at all since I had left her, for I was still anxious about the blood pressure of hers. One doesn't want ants going up in a sheet of flame all over the place. She wasn't there, having, I learned later, withdrawn to her room to bathe her temples with eau de cologne and do yogi deep breathing. But Bobby was, and not only Bobby, but Jeeves. He was handing her something in an envelope, and she was saying, Oh, Jeeves, you've saved a human life. And he was saying, Not at all, miss. The gist, of course, escaped me, but I had no leisure to probe into gists. Where's Kipper, I asked, and was surprised to note that Bobby was dancing round the room on the tips of her toes, uttering animal cries, apparently ecstatic in their nature. Reggie, she said, suspending the farmyard imitations for a moment. He went for a walk. Does he know that Upjohn's found out he wrote that thing? Yes, your aunt told him. Then we ought to be in conference. About Upjohn's libel action? It's all right about that. Jeeves has pinched his speech. I can make nothing of this. Seemed to me that the Beazle spoke in riddles. Have you an impediment in your speech, Jeeves? No, sir. 
Then what, if anything, does the young prune mean? Miss Wickham's allusion is to the typescript of the speech, which Mr. Upjohn is to deliver tomorrow to the scholars of Market Snodsbury Grammar School, sir. She said you pinched it. Precisely, sir. I started. You don't mean... Yes, he does. Said Barbie, resuming the ballet russe movements. Your aunt told him to pack Upjohn's bags, and the first thing he saw when he smacked into it was the speech. He trousered it and brought it along to me. I raised an eyebrow. Well, really, Jeeves? I deemed it best, sir. And did you deem right? Said Barbie, executing a Najimsky, whatever it's called. Either Upjohn agrees to drop the libel suit, or he doesn't get these notes, as he calls them, and without that he won't be able to utter a word. He'll have to come across with the price of the papers, won't he, Jeeves? He would appear to have no alternative, miss. Unless he wants to get up on the platform and stand there, opening and shutting his mouth like a goldfish, we've got him cold. Yes, but half a sec, I said. I spoke reluctantly. I didn't want to damp the young ball of worsted in her hour of joy, but a thought had occurred to me. I see the idea, of course. I remembered Aunt Dahlia telling me the strange inability of Upjohn's to be silver-tongued unless he has the material in his grasp, but suppose he says he's ill and can't appear. He won't. I would. But you aren't trying to get the Conservative Association of the Market Snodsbury Division to choose you as their candidate at the coming by-election. Upjohn is, and it's vitally important for him to address the multitude tomorrow and make a good impression because half the selection committee have sons at the school and will be there waiting to judge for themselves how good he is a speaker. Their last nominee started, and they didn't discover it till the time came for him to dish it out to the constituents. They don't want to make that mistake again. Yes, I get you now, I said. I remember that Aunt Dahlia had spoken to me of Upjohn's political ambitions. So that fixes that. His future hangs on the speech, and we've got it, and he hasn't. We take it from there. And what exactly is the procedure? Oh, that's all arranged. He'll be ringing up any moment now, making inquiries. When he does, you step to the phone and outline the position of affairs to him. Me? That's right. Why me? Jeeves deems it best. Really, Jeeves? Why not Kipper? Mr. Herring and Mr. Upjohn are not on speaking terms, sir. So you could see what would happen if he heard Reggie's voice. He would hang up heartily, and all the weary work to do again. Whereas, he'll drink in your every word. But dash it! And anyway, Reggie's gone for a walk and isn't available. I do wish you wouldn't always be so difficult, Bertie. Your aunt tells me it was just the same when you were a child. She'd want you to eat your cereal, and you would stick your ears back and be stubborn and non-cooperative, like Jonah's ass in the Bible. I could not let this go uncorrected. It's pretty generally known that when at school I won a prize for scripture knowledge. Bollum's ass! Jonah was the chap who had the whale. Jeeves! Sir. To settle a bet, wasn't it Bollum's ass that entered the Nola Prosequi? Yes, sir. Told you so, I said to Bobby. And while I continued grinding her into dust and at the telephone, at that moment tinkled, diverting my mind from the point of issue. The sound sent a sudden chill through the wister limbs for I knew what it portended. Bobby, too, was not unmoved. Hello, she said. This, if I mistake not, is our client now. In you go, Bertie, over the top, and best of luck. 
I have mentioned before that Bertram Worcester, though chilled steel when dealing with the sterner sex, is always wax in a woman's hand, and the present case was no exception. To the R. Short of going over Niagara Falls in a barrel, I could think of nothing I wanted to do less than chat with Aubrey Upjohn at this juncture, especially along the lines indicated. But, having been requested by one of the delicately nurtured to take on the grim task, I had no option. I mean, either a chap's pro or he isn't, as the Chevalier Bayard used to say. But as I approached the instrument and hooked the thing you unhook, I was far from being at my most nonchalant. And when I heard Upjohn are you varying at the other end, my manly spirit definitely blew a fuse, for I could tell by his voice that he was in the testiest of moods. Not even when conferring with me at Malvern House, Bramley on Sea, on the occasion when I put sherbet in the ink, had I sensed in him a more marked stir it up at this. Hello, 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 are you there? Will you kindly answer me? This is Mr. Upjohn speaking. They always say that when the nervous system isn't all it should be, the thing to do is take a couple of deep breaths. I took six, which of course occupied a certain amount of time, and the delay noticeably increased his umbrage. Even at this distance, one could spot what I believe is called the deleterious animal magnetism. Is this Brinkley Court? I can put him straight there. None other, I told him. Who are you? I had to think for a moment. Then I remembered. This is Worcester, Mr. Upjohn. Well, listen to me carefully, Worcester. Yes, Mr. Upjohn. How do you like the bull and bush? Everything pretty snug? What did you say? I was asking if you liked the bull and bush. Never mind the bull and bush. No, Mr. Upjohn. This is of vital importance. I wish to speak to the man who packed my things. Jeeves. What? Jeeves. What do you mean by Jeeves? Jeeves! You keep saying Jeeves and it makes no sense. Who packed my belongings? Jeeves! Is Jeeves the man's name? Yes, Mr. Upjohn. Well, he carelessly omitted to pack the notes for my speech at Market Stosbury Grammar School tomorrow. No, really. I don't wonder you're sore. Sore whom? Sore! With an R. What? No, sorry. I meant with an O-R-E. Worcester! Yes, Mr. Upjohn. Are you intoxicated? No, Mr. Upjohn. Then you are driveling. Stop driveling, Worcester. Yes, Mr. Upjohn. Send for this man Jeeves immediately and ask him what he did with the notes for my speech. Yes, Mr. Upjohn. At once. Don't stand there saying yes, Mr. Upjohn. No, Mr. Upjohn. It is imperative. I have them in my possession immediately. Yes, Mr. Upjohn. Well, I suppose, looking at it squarely, I hadn't made much real progress, and a not-too-close observer might quite possibly have got the impression I had lost my nerve and was shirking the issue. But that didn't, in my opinion, justify Bobby at this point in snatching the receiver from my grasp and bellowing the word worm at me. What did you call me? Set up, John. I didn't call you anything, I said. Somebody called me something. I wish to speak to this man, Jeeves. You do? Said Bobby, but you're going to speak to me. This is Roberta Wickham, Upjohn. If I might have your kind attention for a moment. I must say that much as I disapproved in many ways of this carrot-top Jezebel, as she was sometimes called, there was no getting away from it that she had mastered the art of talking to retired preparatory schoolmasters. The golden words came pouring out like syrup. 
Of course, she wasn't handicapped as I was by having sojourned for some years beneath the roof of Malvern House, Bramley-on-Sea, and having at a medieval age associated with this old Frankenstein's monster when he was going good. But even so, her performance deserved credit. Beginning with a curt listen buster, she proceeded to sketch out with admirable clearness the salient points in the situation as she envisaged it, and judging from the loud buzzing noises that came over the wire, clearly audible to me, though I was now standing in the background, it was evident that the nub was not escaping him. They were the buzzing noises of a man slowly coming to the realization that a woman's hand had got him by the short hairs. Presently they died away and Bobby spoke. That's fine, she said. I was sure you'd come round to our view. Then I will be with you shortly. Mind that there's plenty of ink in your fountain pen. She hung up and legged it from the room, once more giving vent to those animal cries, and I turned to Jeeves as I have so often turned to him before when musing on the activities of the other sex. Women, Jeeves! Yes, sir. Were you following all that? Yes, sir. I gathered that Upjohn, vowing, how does it go? Vowing he would ne'er consent, consented, sir. He's withdrawing the suit. Yes, sir, and Miss Wickham prudently specified that he do so in writing. Thus avoiding all Rani Gazoo. Yes, sir. She thinks of everything. Yes, sir. I thought she was splendidly firm. Yes, sir. It's the red hair that does it, I imagine. Yes, sir. If anyone had told me that I should live to hear Aubrey Upjohn addressed as Buster, I would have spoken further, but before I could get underway, the door opened, revealing Mark Cream, and Jeeves shimmered silently from the room. Unless expressly designed to remain, he always shimmers off when what is called the quality arrives. <laughs>